You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori's carbon removal marketplace. I cannot believe that this is happening. David Addison, a climate and sustainability practitioner based in the UK and a long-term friend and advisor to Nori. How do we finally get you on the show, David? I'm so happy you're here. I think you're the biggest fan. Good evening, Ross. Long time, long time listener, first time co-host. That's the first time co-host. Isn't it? First of many, I hope. Yeah. Very grateful to be here and very excited to talk to our guest today. Me too. We I think you're the biggest influence on me to think more about planetary science and astronomy. You turned me on to David Grinspoon in the beginning, and he's been a huge influence on how I see things and how I think. I wish, I wish that perspective was more present in climate change discussions broadly. And following up on this, we had the opportunity to speak with Heino Falke, professor of astroparticle physics and radio astronomy at Radboud University very well known as a black hole photographer. That's something that we're going to talk about today and author of the book, Light in the Darkness, Black Holes, the Universe and Us. Welcome to the show, Heino. Hello. Great. Great to be here and to meet you. We're grateful to have you here too. Well, David, I wanted to give you first crack at this. If you want to introduce a little bit about the book, what stood out to you and frame this conversation a little bit. Yeah, sure. And for your benefit, Hino, for a bit of context, some of the, the latest episodes of Reversing Climate Change have covered everything from the need to have better conversations, better dialogues across political divides, the relationship between extreme weather and conflict, how you can make uh, non-fungible tokens or NFTs wrapped up into ways of taking carbon out of the air as a way of moving this emergent area forward amongst many. and. When Ross messaged me about a year ago with with the story of this book, which is just, it's awesome, by the way. I just, I loved it. I read it then, loved it. Did the audio book again recently, can highly recommend it. None of the viewers, can, uh, listeners rather, can see this, but I'm waving the book at uh, Ross and Heino on the screen sure. just for your, for your benefit. And, and I thought, you know, this is pretty out there, if you'll forgive the expression, in terms of, you know, the relationship of, black holes or what's the term in the book like fully gravitationally collapsed objects to to climate change to the carbon cycle to these very pressing and very immediate issues of our time and nonetheless the more i read the more i just thought humbly it was a really interesting story and maybe had some some interesting perspectives if nothing else so i thought it was it was just worth worth having having a conversation with yourself and if it goes wrong for the record it's entirely my fault you know you don't have to you don't have to take the lion's share out front it's very very humble british i think yeah we're happy to have you i know well the view from space and all that super important why don't we start there we talk so much about carbon i was wondering i know if you could Introduce for us, where exactly does the element carbon come from? How are these molecules made since they have such an influence on seemingly everything that we touch and do? It's a very interesting question because in the beginning of the universe, when after the Big Bang and, 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 and particles were created, it was mainly filled with hydrogen and helium and carbon wasn't around, at least not in, in very big quantities. And so what happened was this amazing cycle of life you can say in 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 the universe where the the hydrogen was collapsing into galaxies and stars 
and then the first stars were lighting up and nuclear fusion was happening in the center of these stars and hydrogen and helium were, were turned into other elements carbon oxygen nitrogen and if, if the star was very big in the end it was even turned into iron and so the elements were cooked in the centers of stars and then the elements exploded uh, sorry the, the, the stars exploded uh, the elements of course with them and uh, they were you know shot out into interstellar space and it was cooling off and turning into dust essentially and you had you know all kinds of molecules forming and they're going you know flowing through empty space and then the the dust was was pulling together again under the influence of gravity which is you know interesting gravity is the creative force of the universe without gravity nothing would be why is this it's it's the weakest of all forces but it only knows one direction and so if everything pulls in one direction even the weakest force can actually overcome everything else and that's what's happening in the universe and that's why gravity creates it makes new stars and new planets and so forth and so these, these dust clouds you know pull together and, and a new star emerges which now has more elements and then you know some of the dust is 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 left and and going around in in, in a disk like configuration like saturn's ring around saturn and in these these rings around the, the the new star a planet will form and one of these planets will be our earth once again you know i have a lot of hydrogen and, and helium in there in the atmosphere but it will evaporate you know in the early early phase of the earth and then uh, co2 will actually emerge out of the the volcanic activities of, of the earth and so you have an enormous climate revolution in the early phase of the earth and the warm will and the earth will become warm warmer than it should be based on just the radiation from the sun it was good at the time it was good it kept us warm and then life emerges methane comes and it gets even worse I and mean, even better actually with the, with with the, with the, with the climate uh, effect the sure. greenhouse effect and, and then you know and then you have the, the first cyano algae coming up and they're producing uh, oxygen they're turning this in, into oxygen and then we have the atmosphere we can breathe so it's it's a long process from the early phase of the universe out of the big bang you create something crazy as crazy as particles in the first place right it, it, they didn't exist in the beginning of the universe right and 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 then you turn these you know hydrogen and helium into into new atoms and these atoms turn into molecules and they form they form planets and then and these planets forms atmospheres and life and and in the end you know it's all in us and we're talking about the universe again so it's you know <laughs> all the carbon and oxygen in us and it's now thinking about where it came from anything deep time related always makes me feel a little bit stupid or just small or it's hard to think at those skills and i think that's part of why being a human is so challenging because we can't see very far outside of ourselves or out of maybe a thousand years or a couple hundred years or even our own lifetime David, you have more experience at this than I do. Is it any easier for you? Or is it also just like, if he had swapped in different elements there, different timescales, I'd have no way of knowing. Like, no, well, sounds plausible. I, I think, for the record, Hino, I think your um, science fundamentals is better than humbly my astrophysics fundamentals for sure, despite being a, a fan of sometimes looking and look at, looking at and exploring that stuff in my own time. Uh, is it true as well 
And apologies if, if, if this is a question more for some some colleagues who maybe focus on stellar evolution. But is it right that it actually takes a really long time, relatively, to get to the element of carbon in a star? compared to, say, some of the heavier elements later on. I think I read somewhere that it could be millions of years to get from things like I hydrogen, and helium to carbon. It can take billions of years, of course, in the end, because you first start with fully hydrogen that you have to turn into helium. And then, you know, the, the carbon, the production of carbon takes, you know, place even later. And, uh, and it sometimes takes two generations of stars. So in the end, you know, oh, wow. it, it takes those billions of years uh, for these processes to play out. Of course, in the evolution of stars, the, the heavier elements are produced faster and faster towards the end. And, and you have sort of some sort of onion shells. It's sort of a, a star consists of different onions of different elements burning different stages of, of the right. uh, nuclear evolution of, 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 of the elements in, in stars and, and the nuclear fusion. And that happens on different timescales. And, and the, last, the last phases can be very, very fast. But the entire process in the end, that you know, something comes here to a planet, really takes billions of years. Right, right. So, you know, in, in summary, as I think what my, my son once said, less of a big bag and more of a big ta-da at, at, at the beginning. And then eventually simple molecules, more complex molecules, generations, maybe several generations of stars, supernova, collapses, net dust clouds, solar systems, climates form, living processes form, and here we are. To, to, it's, um, it's, it's an almost ahead, an ecosystem yeah. out there. You know, right, it's, it's an entire right. ecosystem out there. This entire universe is to some degree an ecosystem that allows us to live. And, you know, it's necessary. You know, <laughs> we need this big machinery to, you know, have this little bit of life here on, on this planet. What led you on this path, Heino? I know your work focuses so much on black holes. How did you become uh, interested in such a thing? Well, I was always interested by fundamental questions. And, and I, I was a curious kid. Was always ask questions and why, 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 why is this? And and it didn't stop. You know, it's where the adults would say, you know, come on, shut up. And <laughs> you know, I remember lying awake at, as a kid and thinking about you know, what the universe and, and and heaven and you know what's what's out there and you know is this infinite or is it finite? Or if it's finite, what's what's behind it? And, and 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 what is then behind this thing? And and if that's finite, what what's behind that? And and you know, you never came to a a conclusion or an answer is is there a god is there is is there nothing or is there an infinite and so i was asking these kind of questions and and though i you know i was thinking about what what to do as a as as a student you know do you want to do philosophy theology physics i was a nerd to be honest so i it, it became physics but i want to do something that that's you know to the as, as fundamental as possible so particle physics perhaps but then i realized that Gravity is, you know, the, the, the last big mystery in, in, in physics. It's, we understand all the other forces, not everything perhaps, but, you know, we understand them in a big model, but gravity wasn't really understood. It, it was resisting assimilation into the big model of, of particle physics. It, it stood really apart. And it's still the case that, you know, general relativity, the theory of gravity doesn't go together with quantum physics. And these are the big theories that govern everything in the universe. Quantum physics, the matter and the light, the little things. Well, GR, general relativity, 
governs the big space, time, the entire universe. That's what it describes. And all that comes from a little little Big Bang at the beginning, or even before a Big Bang, from, from something that is a quantum-like object. And so it, it had to be together. You know, it, you have to think it together. But, it, you know, we don't understand how that works. So <laughs> uh, that's what I wanted to understand. I realized I was probably a bit too not smart enough to really understand that all. So I, what I thought, let's, let's try to stay close to black holes because that's where gravity is the strongest and, and that's where maybe the new physics may show up at some point. And that's how I was led in that direction. I was drawn into black holes by their really attraction, by their uh, fundamental yes, no, attraction. Nice. Yeah. I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny that we had what attracted you to black holes as a pre-prepared question. So uh, <laughs> yes, no, noted. Uh, on that, maybe just one, one question reflecting on the listeners to this podcast and where they are in their own journeys. Did you always believe that you could become a professor working with other awesome folks around the world on envelope pushing projects? Did you always have that have that belief that you could or were there times where you really thought, am I on the right path? Am I good enough for this? Am I doing the right thing? If that makes sense. Both. I, you know, I was always, I wanted to do this. That was my passion. And when I started physics, the professor, we were 300 students in, in the big lecture hall. And the professor told us, well, at the, you know, by Christmas, that was a few months, you look left and right. So of the three of you, you know, one will be gone after a few months. And at the end of the semester, only one will be left of, of the three. That was not very encouraging. And, and then getting even a professorship was, you know, it was very hard certainly at the time there were not many 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 positions i just wanted to do it and and i was convinced i was going to do something fundamental and i wanted to do it and and i was never satisfied with just doing little thing i always had sort of the big picture in my my back of my mind you know that's where i want to go i want to understand black holes i want to you know see black holes i want to understand the physics near, near black holes yeah that it worked out in the end is is also luck to some degree we have to be honest you know, you can be as smart as you like, and I'm not, you know, <laughs> not as smart as I would like to be, but uh, you have to be also at the right place at the right moment and also you know, take, seize the opportunity. When I started my PhD, I was working some, on something related to black holes, but then, you know, some new d discoveries were made by, by a guy, Reinhard Genzel, you know, who saw some stars in the center of, of the Milky Way. Two years ago, he got a Nobel Prize for that. <laughs> That was just a very early phase of, of these observations. And I thought, oh, that's amazing what's, what's happening there. And because you can use those stars to measure the, the mass of the black hole very precisely. I completely jumped you know, from one topic to the other. And I said, that, that's what I want to do. I want to be there in the center of the Milky Way, understand what this, if there's a black hole and, and understand what it's doing. And I, 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 it's interesting. I don't know what I'm going to do, but you know, I'll do something there. And that worked out well. I'm still, you know, my, my professor at the time said, oh, yeah, let, let's do this. I mean, let, let's make this model here. You know, it will take us two weeks. You know, still working on it today. Right. 20 years, sure. 30 years uh, later. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Well, some of your most prestigious or well-known work is actually taking a photograph of a black hole. I imagine a listener has no idea how such a thing is even possible. Maybe we should walk them through that. <laughs> Well, I think most of my colleagues would have thought that's impossible in their lifetimes. And wow. when I started, I thought it, it was impossible. 
but you know, working on this this black hole, particularly in the center of the Milky Way, but also others. Uh, two things. One was the, the theoretical realization that the black holes are dark, right? How do you see a black hole on a dark background? You know, it, it's impossible to see. But if you shine light at a hole, then the light will disappear in the hole. But you know, you'll see the light surrounding it. And that's what you have with black holes. So you, 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 if you shine light at them, you see a darkness. And so the signature of black holes is actually that darkness where light disappears because you know that's what black holes do. They, everything goes in but never gets out, not even light. And because they have such a strong gravitational attraction. And I realized that, that in the central Milky Way, these black holes would be radiated by radio emission from all directions. And, and I was working at an institute where they were actually developing techniques to make very high resolution images. But it turned out you needed a telescope the size of the Earth at the highest frequencies, produce the very highest resolution ever done in, in astronomy. But it would be possible. At the time, it wasn't possible. It's clear at some point that would be possible. And if we could do this, then we could see that black hole. We would not see the black hole itself. We would see its darkness, its shadow, as we called it later. So I worked this out. We made a prediction, published that in, in 2000, that we can see the shadow of a black hole. And we need to build this worldwide radio telescope array, combined telescopes around the world. We need the perspective on all the continents, essentially, look under slightly different angles. And if you put that together, you, you can actually recreate an image of a telescope that would be the size of the Earth. And that's what we did. In, in 2017, we did this experiment. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm skipping a lot of the story here. It's in the book. <laughs> and, <Okay. Yeah. laughs> and in 2019, we published the first image, and I had the honor to present this in a big press conference and to show, you know, this is the first image of a black hole. And that was a, you know, to me, a momentous moment because you turn something that was a theoretical fantasy sci-fi thing into a reality that you can see, you can look at it. And yeah, I just, just, you know, of course I had seen it before and I was at this press conference, I'd seen it before, but, but just sharing it with the world. You know, I think, I think the book, I, I write this one sentence, we took this, the image with the world, we gave it back to the world and the world embraced it in a way I'd never expected it. It became a global sensation. There was like four and a half billion people saw that image. It, it was sort of, everywhere at the time in 2019 and recently we published another one which didn't get quite as much attention but still was a big thing and looking at sort of the end of space and time was suddenly possible and seeing the darkness of the event horizon is it right that the to kind of put the scales in perspective the i think i think you'd write in the book that imaging the first black hole which is the the massive black hole, six billion with a B plus six billion times yes, the mass yes. of the sun at the middle of M87, just a, an enormous, not that our galaxy isn't enormous, but an even more enormous galaxy, 55 million light years away. That's, is that correct? That there's the correct, that's at the right scale. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes. Oh, no, my uh, old uh, A-level physics teacher, <laughs> if they were listening to this, would be like, oh, well, he took something in. So that's good. But anyway, I digress. So... Is it the equivalent of basically, I think you say, taking a photo of a mustard seed in New York when exactly. your camera from, from is, in, you know. is, in, is in Europe? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, 
mind-boggling or mind-boggling scale. Sorry. You could read, you know, with such a telescope, uh, you could read the New York Times or the Washington Post, whatever, in New York from from Europe, or the other other way around. We also have good newspapers in Europe, so which you you know maybe should be trying to to read. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Again, given the the theme of this podcast, fifty five million years ago was was a pretty interesting time for Earth. The climate was much warmer. CO two was much higher. A lot of the, uh, as I understand it, and people should go and listen to episodes uh, such as those with Peter Brannan for a more accurate description of this whole realm. But I'm pretty sure that a lot of the modern species of mammal were really starting to show up in the fossil record from around that time. Primates, whales and dolphins, known as cetaceans, all that sort of stuff was really starting to get going on Earth, just as the the radio waves that would have been leaving the M87 uh, supermassive black hole yeah, well, obviously, I know that when you get into general relativity, that's maybe not strictly true in terms of how time does or does not go against no, the universe. Pretty, but indulge pretty, me as a, it's, a, it's a okay. scientist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, this is sort of, you know, we're looking back at the age of the dinosaurs, so to speak, uh, when we're looking at this at this object. And that's close, actually. You know, it's in, on cosmic right. scales, this is actually our neighborhood. This might be a facile question. It's a little bit freshman hanging out in the dorm room. A hazy dorm room, one might even say. How could a black hole exist? There's no way to ask it. Surely we're going to end up in theology here, I think. But why? No, no. I no, why <laughs> why they exist? Um, why they're natural? Yeah, they're natural consequence of of gravity. As gravity only has one direction. I thought you know it's actually they're the consequence of the fact that anything exists because we only exist because of gravity. That sort of. Is, is a creative force and sometimes it can sort of you know be too much and then everything collapses and, and keeps collapsing forever because there's no force that can stop it if there you know there are just so many particles pulling in the same direction there's nothing in the universe that can stop it from forming and uh, from, from collapsing and, and then and, and a black hole will form because it was sort of all the matter is compressed into into a point so in in, in the end um you know it's like it's always good and bad. There's, you know, if there's light, there's shadow. If if there's good, there's bad. And um, I'm not not going to say that black holes are bad, actually, by by any means. But uh, unless you fall into them, so then then they're actually pretty uh, annoying. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you won't get out. But that's the price you pay for the fact that anything exists at all in this universe that resembles anything reasonable, like stars, planets. You know, we all hold together by gravity. We were brought together by gravity. A more general way of asking this is, again, very dorm roomy, but no other way to ask it. Why does the universe have physical rules? Why? Why yeah, is there such a thing? Bang! We're going meta. We're going meta. Yes, that's a. And and why? Why can we understand them? I mean, they're so they're simple enough. I mean, you may not say they're simple if you you know if you've had to take some courses in physics, but but in the end, they're simple enough that we, the basic principles of this universe we can understand. And it's quite interesting. Of course, I have a little bit of also theology background. If if you look sort of at, at, at the Bible, then the first thing that was created was light. Yeah, but before that, you know, it's God and God spoke or God said, "Let there be light." So there's the words, you know, in the beginning was the words. 
and also in every scientific creation story that we tell, you know, you always start with a set of rules and they turn something into what we see today. Sometimes nothing. Well, there's never, you never start with nothing actually in, 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 in modern, in, in scientific stories. So, you know, where does this word come from? Where do the laws come from? And why, why is it that we can understand them even with our little brains? Yeah. That's one of the big mysteries and, and challenges. And, and yeah, I, I find it still amazing. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. <laughs> we could live in a universe that, that completely doesn't make any sense. Some people say we do. But <laughs> to a physicist, I think, you know, it, there, there is some sense and order in this universe. I was only briefly, um, I was at uh, an event in the UK a few weeks ago with a bunch of scientists, people from universities on specifically this area of taking carbon and other greenhouse gases or mainly carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And I think the most common term throughout the whole day was three words, real world complexity and just every scientist who got up and was talking through a particular approach however ecological or industrial or other ways of classifying them it was just actually very illuminating and, and heartening to see a bunch of folks really trying to grapple with that complexity coming at it with that humility you have to i assume as a scientist to really try and understand all these physical phenomena and really try and make sense of it it was just a very interesting day it's a very important point that you make the basic laws may sound simple. The, the first word was simple, but it created enormous complexity. And actually also an exciting universe. And also a universe that gives a lot of room for new things to develop. And also prevents us from predicting everything in the end. You know, science is you know, about predictability and we can predict things if they are simple and, and clear but how a complex system evolves. It's almost fundamentally impossible to really predict in, in great detail. You know, there's a, you know, again in the book, I, you know, there was a, there's actually a planet, an, an asteroid named after me. And, and, and you can predict how this goes around the sun for, for, for a while, but actually it will interact with all the other asteroid gravitationally and, and the planets. And, right. and so over long time scales, it's completely unpredictable the Heino Falco will be in the next couple of million years. And right. so you know, I was saying, I was, I was praying that it would never hit, hit New York because you know, I would be really sorry to hear in the news you know, Heino Falco destroyed New York. But <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's something you, you just can't tell. You just can't tell, it could happen. That's very unlikely to happen, but you know, so complex systems are inherently unpredictable. So you have to try different things, different approaches, and you have to make assumptions. And that's where I think we have to understand what science is. It gives us certain rules and certain directions. We still have to make choices and we never have absolute certainty, even when we do science. But I mean, there are, you know, some cases that are, you know, easier to, to, you know, sometimes it's easy to, to predict what's going to happen. Like if, if we don't do anything like with carbon, for example, you know, greenhouse effect will just, you know, keep, keep going. Sure. I think that's, that's very solid. But, you know, if, as you say, if, if you fiddle with it, what effect will these have? It's an interesting question. Sure. And maybe related to that, and I think without, you know, going too deep on, on the carbon side, 
most areas of both cutting emissions in the first place, which is still almost cliched to say at this point, but almost still necessary to emphasize you've got a lot of proven scaled things, you've got renewable energy, you've got energy efficiency, you've got more sustainable ways of managing land. And there's a huge amount of complexity and science and research that's gone into each of those. Broadly speaking, many people out there today advocating for taking carbon out of the air will talk about how a lot of these solutions have to go on the same sort of journey to grapple with the fundamental science and engineer that into the real world if you're dealing with hardware, figure out how these complex natural systems from soils to oceans to forests and other things can restore their own carbon balances and carbon budgets and carbon stocks as well. Maybe one one question for you, Heino, is... Plus, it's a social question well, as well. well. No, quite, yeah. Don't, no, don't indeed, forget yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. If people become poor, start revolting, they don't get, you know, they're not not fed anymore or, or whatever. I mean, you know, it's it's more than just a biology. It's it's a very very complex issue. That's and that's why it's not just science in the end. Unfortunately, right. that would make it easier. So no, 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 for sure. You know, there's a big. I know Ross Ross knows knows this as well, and many of the Nori team do. And I think many of the past guests you've had on the podcast have have really spoken to how this whole area of sort of redefining and restoring our relationship with the climate has to go hand in hand with a bunch of other important areas of of sustainability of justice of of equality of inclusion and not to kind of segue segue too much but as far as the the EHT project went i just humbly thought it was really interesting how i think you mentioned it was close to 350 different scientists around the world collaborating in a bunch of different elements of it i think one line in the book was the sociology can be harder than the physics and <laughs> yes. you know obviously you know helping have every you know diverse part of the world with all its local complexity go on this journey and 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 seeing and imagining all the different ways that many 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 millions and ultimately billions of human beings would 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 collaborate is maybe not kind of directly translatable from 350 uh, qualified astrophysicists working together to to image a black hole. But it seemed like reading the book, um, just those those principles of getting projects going, turning curiosity into discovery, how you stay rigorous, how you question yourselves, how you collaborate whilst also competing, how you even help people change perspectives. Do you kind of... Do you, would you have any particular advice or perspectives based on your own journey imaging black holes for for people going on their own areas of scientific discovery yeah. in other fields? To me, that was a very fascinating experience. The sociological development as well, the Event Horizon Telescope, you know, the EHT. You, you mentioned it. You know, it, it was a, a vision in the beginning of a few, but it became sort of bigger and bigger, and then you have you had sort of people from different continents, they had different telescopes, different backgrounds, sometimes theorists and observers and experimentalists and data analysts. And they come together and to do this, to have this one goal to make an image of a black hole, you needed them all. But they have different ways of thinking about it, different ways of talking. And it went very quick, actually, even at the time when we did our first experiment, we hadn't even settled down all the rules of the engagement. And, and then you see how sort of, I think it's like even in medieval state nation building, right? Rules emerge and procedures emerge, but it's all hard fought. It costs a lot of effort to, to 
talking to each other. And, and there were a lot of anger as well, disappointment and, and, and problems along the way. I don't even describe them all. You could write yet another book about it. But it was certainly the goal that kept us together in the first place. And indeed, some, some principles that are important. Certain principles, for example, that we wanted to do everything multiple times to check what we're doing. So not just rely on one source, but have multiple teams doing the same thing. And that leads to an interesting competitive collaboration attitude. Because, you know, within the collaboration, it was clear we would come with one common result. But everyone was competing to having the better methods, and their methods were checking each other. And they were, and, and was creating a lot of, it was producing a lot of creativity as well by, by putting out this challenge and, and have teams to work and, and compete a little bit. But you no, know, it actually is, it's going to be one framework. Everything will actually be, in the end, almost everything we used. We had like 400 pages published with just all the methods and all the checks that were done. Every pass we took was an important one. And, and I think the same is, applies to, to other global challenges that we need to explore these different challenges, but we need to find a framework where those different ideas can lead towards this, this common goal. And of course, we have to agree, agree on this common vision. And that's still a problem, you know, <laughs> in the world that, we, you know, we haven't embraced this as a common positive vision. Many people see this as a threat, right? So nobody in, in our collaboration thought that, you know, make an image would be dangerous or bad or would, you know, everybody understood this was a big thing. And we believed it was possible. With, with climate change, there's still, you know, many people who, you know, challenge it, even afraid of it, doing something about it, I mean, afraid of it. So it's not just, a, it's never only a technological question. It's always also a social, sociological question. And honestly, we could have failed easily. There were many places, or many times, where the collaboration could have exploded, where things could have gone wrong, we could have taken the wrong turn, and it was a lot of effort and talking. And and again, that vision to, you know, we have to all together get to the finishing line, and we don't want to leave people behind in the end. So that was also, maybe some people felt left behind to some degree because they weren't equally recognized as some others. But, you know, in the end, I think everything, you know, contributes to the bigger goal. I know I have to ask you because you've mentioned theology a number of times and you also had a good Christian dog whistle. I'm mentioning a mustard seed because you could have answered a uh, poppy seed, <laughs> but everyone knows the mustard seed. You know, it looks to say the reference didn't fall on stony ground over here. I think it's safe to say, <laughs> but people would not associate these two things, Christianity or really any religious belief potentially with astronomy. How could one justify these two things? There's cosmological interventions of God through Jesus. I don't think people expect this of scientists. What do you think they're missing? Well, it's, uh, you know, I have a Christian background. I, you know, I, I, and, and I'm even a, a, an ordained lay minister. So I, I preach occasionally. And I think it's a very good other leg to stand on to see, you know, what people feel about, what they think about, to talk about the spiritual needs as well. But it also makes you think about, of, of course, of, of the universe. And yes, I do like to use then certain biblical, you know, terms because the mustard seed is also a symbol of hope. Yeah, 
that something something bigger can grow out of this. That's why I like to talk about the mustard seed that you see, because you see something small and that could turn into something really big if you, you know scientifically, but also maybe maybe beyond this. So <laughs> there's some symbolic nature to this indeed. But yeah, I I, I want to you know contradict what you're saying that that you know people see that as a contradiction. In fact, throughout most of history, that really went together. Uh, a lot of the science that we see today came from believing scientists. You know, we, we talk, look, look at Kepler, for example, you know, who revolutionized our worldview and, you know, formulated the, the motion of the planets around the sun, which led to the, 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 the law of gravity by Newton. By the way, another theologian. And he was fascinated by the beauty of the universe. And he ended with a big prayer at the end of his book. You know, we don't do this in, in science articles anymore but they had a deep sense of something bigger out there and i think that that sense is still there if you look at this this mighty universe it's never just a technological view it's always a little bit a spiritual view as well you know what's out there and what's behind where do we come from and that question i think science will never answer you know where do these laws of nature come from who spoke the first word was it someone or was it something? Were they pre-existing or, you know, where does it come from? It, it's, you have to start in science from a certain set of, of rules and you cannot ask anymore where they come from. Faith gives you a place and you connect it then. And that's what religions do. They connect that sort of first cause, that those deep metaphysical questions with sort of spiritual needs of today. And, and I think people do need that. Because we, science shouldn't be be used sort of for spiritual, you know, things in a way, right? It, it shouldn't solve all our emotional, spiritual needs. And, and, and science is not the the place to ask why questions. Why does it happen? What is my purpose? These are questions you don't ask in science, and you sh- you shouldn't. Yeah, you shouldn't force science to to do this. And I sometimes see that that's happening. But so I, I, again, again, I think we need to stand on two legs if you want to develop this world further. We need very excellent, outstanding, critical, skeptical science. But we also need very healthy, spiritual minds and souls and bodies and societies in a way. Criticizing some, 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 some churches, I think, I mean, they could learn a bit of you know, scientific methods. I mean, also be, be a bit more critical of themselves sometimes. You know, it's uh, science, you know, knows certain truths, but only within a certain limit. And nobody knows it all. And I sometimes, I was, it was recently in, in, in another interview, and I, I was remembering when I was in the US like 20 years ago, there was a Bible answer man, I think. That was, that was even his name. And you could call, ask every question. He would look into the Bible. He could answer every question. Was, is there life out in the universe? <laughs> whatever. You could ask whatever. And he knew everything and he knew it exactly right. He knew oh, everything. Gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah, how, how do you do this? The scientists know a little thing that, that, that he or she knows very well. But about the rest, you know, we have to talk to experts. How can one person claim even he, he or she knows everything? So I think a little bit more humbleness among churches would also help us a lot. <laughs> in that in that discussion and, and more have conversation either, between the two well no sure yeah well, in that regard have either of you watched i can't remember if i've enthusiastically promoted this to you and other norinauts yet ross but have you watched the film contact 
1997 adaptation of Carl Sagan's book with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey and a, a wonderful ensemble cast about finding a signal yep. from an inside world and building a craft to go there. Because the the film version, you know, watched it. I know other people in, in this space have watched it and loved it as well. I remember watching it and enjoying it as a kid. I watched it as an adult and just absolutely love the interplay between science and faith that happens between Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey's characters in, in that film. I just thought it's a really, it's a really lovely story. Yeah, no, I, I saw that. And I, I think that, that <laughs> it was an interesting twist that in the end, you know, the, the clear science wasn't believed anymore because <laughs> yeah, um, I don't want to give away the, the, the plot entirely. But the movie's been out for, yeah. for several decades. I think you're safe if you'd like to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Human societies and, and humans are just more complex indeed. And I think ignoring the spiritual needs that we have and also the, the strengths. There's the strengths. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, we always, in science, we try to get rid of any spiritual thinking, and that's good, right? But for solving problems in, in the complex world of, of humans, you cannot think without the spiritual world of your inside and, and what you what you believe. What you believe about the beginning affects how you treat others and affects how you think about the future as well. And I think what, what we also need next to knowledge, which science gives you, we also need hope. You know, hope, love, and faith. These are the three things that we also need. And I think science can neither give us anything. It gives us knowledge. When I was younger, secular humanism, I had many progressive peers that, and I think even myself at some point, were very, very bullish on it as a replacement for religion. Religion was this corrupt arena that humans had in the past been misled by. And now as a species, we were moving past. But a lot of my friends who are of that sort of progressive continuum I think as they've aged, have gotten into weirder, or maybe I should say newer types of religious experience. Many of them are into tarot or astrology or things that are coming back now that are new age or you know, some pagan beliefs too. So I think a lot of people are realizing that placing so much on science and secular humanism maybe wasn't the the thickest of places to build a foundation and that actually they needed something a bit more and they've been looking. I don't know. I don't know that everyone always experiences that as a conscious phenomenon. I think for a lot of people, it's subconscious. And I don't know if you've experienced a lot of that Hino in your circles or David, but I've seen that. Yeah. And, and as you recognize certain developments or another example that, that, you know, I see in, 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 in scientific circles uh, is the people start thinking about is this world real actually are we living in a big computer simulation you know which is uh, <laughs> you hear that the, people actually scientists actually trying to test that that hypothesis are we living in in a, in a computer simulation because the world world you know is too perfect in a way that it works actually <laughs> but then I, I was thinking, you know, isn't isn't that that idea that we are just, you know, everything we see here is is not real, and we are just sort of we're set here in a computer simulation that was started at some point by someone? <laughs> isn't that a very fundamentalist way of 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 looking at it? So, like in, in a seven day creation, you know, idea, someone placed everything there, and and then it 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 ran. You know, you you now think 
the the, the entire universe is a computer simulation where some programmer put it there. <laughs> What's the difference there? I I don't believe this, <laughs> and I, I'm neither a creationist that believes in 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 the seven day creation, nor do I do believe in 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 the computer simulation. But I, it shows that people start, you know, getting all kinds of ideas, and that to me is 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 actually also a religious idea almost, but coming in right. in the form of 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 tech, yeah, or right. thinking about oh. e Elon Musk who comes is sort of, sort of an, a messiah for technology fans, and I I say this I some, some probably get hate mails, and I do if I sometimes say this on on Twitter or something negative about Elon Musk, yeah, like like a new prophet of of the technology world and of course like all these you know new prophets and i i miss the english word for it heilsbringer in german you know you have to be very careful and mindful and and and, and it can be dangerous so i, th I think yeah. that, that's why having organized religion is i mean i i i understand everything you say about corrupt churches and so forth i mean they do exist and and people are being misled but we also need to keep keep our churches and communities alive and well and doing a proper job and also being critical about themselves and starting something com com completely from scratch i think will not be better i'm imagining now ross and, and heino a sort of proverbial pipeline of researchers trying to work out whether or not the universe is a simulation then going into you know, detailed soil carbon simulation or ecosystem biodynamic modeling, or you know, something with a for a real challenge rather than rather than those those kind of areas. And I, I think I remember. I think isn't it? Is is I think I, I think I looked this up on Wikipedia. More than eighty percent of human beings in the world subscribe to one of the major faiths: Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, um, Hinduism. Or, or some form, some form of, I think, other folk religion, for want of a better description. And to your point earlier on, Heino, you know, if if issues like climate affect everyone, and ultimately, yes, require leadership from people in positions of power and influence, but ultimately need human beings around the world to reimagine and redefine how they interact with the carbon cycle and the climate system fundamentally it just seems to me that maybe there are more ways of bridging gaps between the scientific and the spiritual world and i humbly thought uh, not to wave the book again but light in the darkness was just a really nice example of going through a journey that attempts to do that so thank you for writing it Thank you for getting an audio book out as well, so I could listen to it whilst cleaning the bathroom and <laughs> doing other other chores and Don't tell having quite a, a, a mind-opening <laughs> experience at the same time with ecological bathroom cleaner. I urgently point out, but yeah, just thank you so much. Thank you so much for writing it, uh, Ross. Have you got any further questions? I've got a couple kind of closing ones. Have you got any? Mostly just want to know where people can follow your work and keep up with what you're doing for the future, Heino. Well, I'm on Twitter, HHFalke, H-F-A-L-C-K-E. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook if if you want. There's a webpage, lightinthedarkness.org or heinofalke.org even. So just Google me, Heino Falke. I'll be, uh, maybe I'm going to write another book, you know, something in that direction we're just, just discussing. <laughs> but it'll take me a little while to do that. <laughs> We'll be glad to have you back on uh, when the time comes. David, is there anything you'd like to add or should I start signing off? 
or I might, I have, a, I highlighted a quote from the book. I don't know if it's massively corny, which is also the, the theme of a joke I have about industrial agriculture, by the way, but uh, I won't go in that direction. I could, I could read a brief quote from the book. So in the book, you write, I know we humans are just specks of dust on a slightly bigger speck of dust in the immeasurable vastness of space. We can't cause stars to explode. We don't set the wheels of galaxies spinning. And it, it, and it is not we who span the vault of heaven above us. But we can marvel at the universe and ask questions about it. We can have faith, hope, and love in this world. And this makes us stardust of a very special kind. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. And, and you know, in, in all this discussion about this universe, uh, this earth, you sometimes get the feeling, and sometimes I hear the statements, the humans are the virus. Realize how bad we are for this planet, and that's very true. But we should not forget how special we are as humans and that we can change things. But I think we can only change things if we, if we want it and if we love what we do, if we love ourselves and if we love that, that planet. And so that, that's part of this process that we have to go through. And that's, again, sort of a spiritual challenge. That's also important for religions to actually embrace creation, create, embrace nature more. There are lots of statements also in the Bible that sort of, you know, one day tells it to the other and, you know, that, that you listen to nature. You, and, and so we need to get a different perspective of our, ourselves again and, and of nature, that we are part of it. You know, we are physics, we are biology, we are, but we also art and songs and stories and all that is, makes us. And that makes us very special. And, and I think we have a place to live on this planet. Some, some people doubt that even. Yeah. I think we have a place to play and we can do marvelous things, but we have to find a way to do this in a sustainable way that, you know, gives us that freedom and that ability for the many generations to come in the future. Together with nature, not against it. Together with technology, together with science, not against it. Together with religion and spiritual spirituality and not against it. Amen. Amen. That's a beautiful point to conclude on. Uh, Heino, thank you so much for being with us. Well, it was it was great uh, pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> it's always you know it's so nice to be you know asked different kinds of questions and and so you you're drawn out of your daily routine and suddenly think about something much much bigger, and that's what I love 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 doing. And thank you for giving that opportunity. Uh, that's a high compliment, one that I always <laughs> am glad to receive. And thank you, David. You're no longer a podcasting virgin. You're now <laughs> initiated into the world of podcasters. Congratulations. <laughs> I can edit uh, that if you don't want you. me to call you that on the air. <laughs> no, no. Call me what you like. I've been called uh, worse. And uh, yeah, uh, feedback welcome. Please write to hello at nori.com for your uh, commentary and uh, constructive criticism. Is that still the email? Uh, yeah, I, I forget to do that now. I'll just do the normal sign off. But yeah, you can always write to hello at nori.com if you have comments or feedback of any kind. Uh, thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please tell a friend. Give us a great rating and review on iTunes, which is now Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks so much for listening and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. 
You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com. Follow us on social media. and We will catch you next time.